Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. Today, we are continuing our discussions about wrongful convictions here in Michigan. We have a distinguished professor emeritus and counsel to the WMU Cooley Innocence Project, Marla Mitchell Sishan, who's been involved in lots of uh, people getting out of prison, a very impressive resume. Um, and I'm going to let her tell you all about it. So let's welcome Marla to the show. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Hi there. Welcome to Open Mic. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've been reading uh, all about you. Um, you know, I, I one of my first guests was Kenny Wanenko, who I know you had a, a hand in, who talks very highly of you. And I'm uh, saying your name for years. So maybe that's why I know how to pronounce it so well. But I'm, I'm really excited you're here. Why don't you start by telling us about the Western Michigan University Cooley Law Innocence Project? Sure. We um, started our program in the law school in 2001, and our program was specifically designed to respond to um, a law that had been passed in Michigan um, allowing post-conviction DNA testing. So we focused on cases in which we could go back, um, find biological evidence in a case, and DNA test it. And, and just for uh, viewers and listeners um, information, other innocence clinics focus on everything but DNA um, or some of them do both. And yours is just focused on cases. You only accept cases to review that have a DNA component. Well, we've changed our focus. We've broadened it a bit, but yes, that was our original design. And then um, through the years, a few things happened. One was that, um, there began to be a very large focus on unreliable science or unreliable forensic practices in general. And also we learn through working with a handful of our own clients, folks that we accepted um, as our clients, you know, and then the DNA testing wouldn't work out for some reason, you know, the, the sample wasn't good enough, but yet we had been working with this individual for years. And so we would sometimes change, you know, change our focus and try to attack the case in a different way. Got it. And what role do the students play at, at your law school? So the students um, have the primary responsibility of doing initial screening of cases. Um, we have a you know several levels of screening. So they screen questionnaires to make sure that they do meet our criteria, which is essentially, you have to have been convicted of a crime here in Michigan. You um, are claiming innocence, you're not um, raising general legal issues and that your case presents um, either an opportunity for potential DNA testing or your a, a forensic practice was used that we could scrutinize or take a closer look at to see 
if we can challenge it. And how did you personally become interested in helping the wrongfully convicted? Well, that's probably too long of a story for the show, Mike, but I will tell you briefly that when I was actually in law school some 30 years ago, I worked in a post-conviction clinic and I got very familiar with um, post-conviction work, which of course means your client is in prison. Um, and so fast forward, um, when I came to Cooley, I was actually hired to teach in an elder law clinic and the DNA clinic was started in 2001 and I had a criminal and post-conviction background and I was very excited to kind of come full circle and start working with prisoners again. That's great. That's great. And now your Innocence Clinic has helped many people, including Kenny Wanenko, who's been on a couple of our shows, including our special 100th episode of Open Mic. He was wrongfully convicted of rape. Um, how gratifying is it uh, when you are able to free an innocent person? Well, that's what we come to work for every day, right? I mean, we're really fortunate in that now we're working uh, collaboratively with the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit, as well as the Attorney General's Conviction Integrity Unit. We actually share grant funding with both of those offices and work directly with them. But prior to that, um, most of the cases would literally take years. Um, our most recent, ex uh, one of our most recent exonerations was Gilbert Poole. He served 32 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And I personally worked on the case for 18 years. Wow. So it's very gratifying when you finally are able to see your client walk out of prison. So I'm, I'm familiar with Mr. Poole. I'm familiar with your amazing work. How did he become a suspect in that case? Mr. Poole became a suspect because his then girlfriend um, and he were, they had moved out of the state of Michigan. He was actually not from Michigan and they were living in his home state, North Carolina. Um, they had a falling out and she went to a local police department in North Carolina, indicating that she had information about a murder up in Pontiac, Michigan. And from there, the story unfolded. There was an unsolved crime and Mr. Poole became a suspect based on her implication of him. Obviously, she was just trying to get back at him. Obviously, because DNA testing um, proved that he was not at the crime scene and that the blood of someone else was, in fact, at the crime scene. And that testing was done before the first trial, wasn't it? Or there was some testing done? Well, back in 1988, I believe, is when his crime or his trial took place. The post convict DNA testing wasn't going on then. No. So, so they didn't have DNA testing in 1988. They did do blood type testing and there was a sample that was um, not consistent with Mr. Poole, but that evidence was never introduced at trial. Which, which was shocking when I read, when I read that. Um, well, so yes. what, what you know, very, very similar to Ken's case in the sense that Ken was excluded by blood typing in his trial, yet he was convicted anyway. So that's just really unfortunate that, that, you know, um, there's actually exculpatory evidence at the time of someone's arrest and it still leads to a wrongful conviction. And if I don't, if, my, if memory serves, and it's been over a year since we did Kenny's first episode, weren't there like cigarette butts and underwear that was never tested before the trial? Yes, it, absolutely. And then through your clinic, you were able to get those things tested and eventually got him exonerated. Correct. That is I mean, for those of you listening and watching who have not watched the episodes on Kenny's case, uh, that had everything that could go wrong, right. that went wrong, goes wrong, whatever I'm trying to say. That case had it all. 
And yes. And in fact, what you would see, Mike, in virtually any case was we were chatting about, um, you know, what kind of cases does my my office do versus other innocence projects consistently? We're going to see more than one factor, right? One fact, you know, there's a handful of factors that tend to lead to wrongful convictions. And in, in Ken's case and in Gilbert Poole's case, what we tend to see is you know, more than one thing went wrong in that case, which led to the wrongful conviction. So I think it's also really important for your viewers, you know, to, to know that, you know, a lot of times DNA wasn't used at the original time of trial. And it's the DNA testing that then creates that exculpatory evidence that changes the entire, uh, you know, complexion of the case. Yeah, no, I love it. And, and you brought up a good point. It's DNA is part of it, but there could be you guys are still going to be argue, arguing if it's, you know, uh, bad lawyering or if there's a bad lineup or a bad confession, I mean, or a bad, you know, whatever, uh, there's other, there's it's multifaceted. It's not only usually just the DNA, but it sounds like DNA is one of the best tools to prove innocence more so than most if it's available. Certainly um, the science is sound, but we have to keep in mind that, um, even DNA testing is performed by people, right? And so people can make mistakes. But if the science is brought to bear properly, right? It, it, and um, then yes, DNA. But again, a lot of stars have to align there, right? First, the perpetrator has to leave his DNA behind at a crime scene. That's not a typical crime scene scenario. But yes, um, you know, in an ideal world, we can not only um, produce a DNA profile, but perhaps even identify who the true perpetrator is, which did ultimately happen in Ken's case. But that's also very rare because in these older, I'm going to say older cases, that's kind of a relative term when I use it, um, you know, the, the evidence has not been stored properly or maybe it's been interacted with as it was in Ken and Gilbert Poole's case. Um, so every time you interact with biological evidence, it's, it's a portion of it's consumed. So you can't expect to get a nice, clean DNA profile in a lot of these older cases. You're hoping to get some information compared to your client that says this cannot be your client. And in Mr. Poole's case, if I remember right, I mean, there was fingernail evidence, there was blood evidence, um, and there was bite mark evidence. And, and we've been on the show, we've had several people on the show that talked about bite marks and how the evidence you know, 20, 30 years ago is one thing and now it's completely debunked or, or, or it's shown that it's not as reliable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you're being pretty kind there, Mike. Um, bite, bite mark evidence in terms of a scientific approach to evidence, it's never been scientific. Um, however, courts have allowed it, um, not only in Michigan, but throughout the country. So, um, and this is true of other um, comparative, I'll call them comparative forensic practices like hair comparison. Um, there is, there are some aspects of it that are scientific, but the, those tools are not, um, you know, they're, they're not something that we can rely on. So you cannot compare a bite mark in a victim to, um, you know, for example, Gilbert Poole's teeth marks and say with any degree of scientific certainty that, that that those are his teeth. Similarly, you can't compare a hair found at a crime scene and say with scientific certainty that, you know, for example, it's your hair, Mike. 
Um, so unfortunately, a lot of these practices have been used throughout the criminal justice system for years. And you're correct, a bite mark was used in Mr. Poole's trial in 1988, and he challenged it at the trial. He challenged it on appeal. He challenged it in his federal appeal. And um, it, it took um, 32 years for there to be an official recognition that the bite mark comparison used in this case was essentially junk. You know, when I read the testimony of uh, the expert who, who the expert wasn't a dentist, but it was like an ENT, I think. Um, but, but it was compelling. I mean, it was, he said two billion to one chance it's Mr. Poole's teeth. I mean, what, Absolutely. what jury's not going to convict? I'll bet you Mr. Poole's knew when that, when he heard that testimony, that that was a, a death sentence right there. I mean, it, that that's, that's, uh, I mean, the, the, the testimony was, I mean, I read the, through the testimony. That was probably the most uh, compelling piece that I saw. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not surprised the jury convicted based on that. Are you? Uh, no. In fact, um, we know generally that juries are going to be very um, drawn in by so-called scientific evidence because it is supposed to be objective, correct? But but this bite mark comparison was not objective science. And unfortunately, um, uh, Dr. Warnick um, was the witness that tied Mr. Poole to the crime scene definitively but that evidence was not valid evidence. So unfortunately that was very damning evidence in this case. And what do we, I didn't understand what you were saying about the hair evidence. So if my hair is found at a crime scene, what, what, what were you saying that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to identify that it was my hair or that I was at the crime scene? Um, both. Um, so in other words, they, if, if, if you were at a crime, even if you were at a crime scene and you left your hair and you weren't the killer, um, you know, scientifically, science does not back up the theory that you can compare hairs from a crime scene with a known hair sample from Mike Morse and then definitively say it's his. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a bit complicated, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, certainly we can, we might be able to agree this hair came from an African-American contributor or this, per, this hair is a gray hair. But um, it's certainly um, they're, they're, they look at patterns in the hair shaft and it's a very subjective process. It's, it's just done by literally putting the known hair and the crime hair under two different microscopes and going from microscope to microscope and noting similarities and differences. And the key point for the listeners is, is that um, in the criminal justice system, we've had um, forensic, um, you know, police officers trained, um, even the FBI has trained individuals um, in this practice, but the FBI has since come out and said um, that their training and their testimony, it's the testimony that's key here, um, is overstating the conclusions that can be drawn from this type of a forensic analysis. So no one can ever say, Mike, you were, your. this was definitively your hair because science just doesn't support that type of analysis. And that shows how little I know. Uh, I thought hair was a DNA or a, you know, a biomarker type uh, piece of evidence. I, we haven't actually had a hair case. Maybe that's why, because it's, it's not reliable, but I thought hair, 
you know, in the movies, at least they uh, catch hair samples all the time and they use it to convict. Am I right? Well, again, if we're talking about a hair that has a root on it, root has a root, a hair root has nuclear DNA and uh. you can DNA test it. And that is reliable, but I'm not talking about DNA testing of a hair. I'm talking about just eyeballing the hair. Okay. You know, looking at hairs and using my training to determine if that hair is consistent with a crime scene hair. And they're, and, and while you're on this topic, the DNA technology is at a stage where um, they may start to be able to um, do some nuclear DNA testing with hair that doesn't have a root to it. So the DNA testing um, process for hair is is pretty complicated, but the key driving force generally is did that have uh, did that hair have a root or not, and that defines what type of DNA testing you can use. So you can DNA test and maybe place you at a crime scene. So don't get you know don't get too casual um, in your behavior there, Mike. But um, you know I'm not talking about DNA testing of hair. I'm talking about what's been commonly called hair comparison um, or hair analysis. Helpful, helpful. And, and in Mr. Poole's case, tell us about this fingernail evidence, which excluded Mr. Poole as the contributor um, from from there was there was samples of fingernail evidence in the crime scene. Uh, he he was excluded. Did the jury hear hear about that? Um, he actually they actually were not. Um, again, we're talking about what they did in 1988, not what they did years later. But in 1988. Um, if I recall correctly, there was insufficient material under the nails to draw any conclusions. But Mr. Poole, there was a mixed blood sample found on a stone embedded or a very small pebble embedded in the victim's body. And that um, sample with blood had a type of blood that was consistent with the victim. And then it had another blood type on it, which was inconsistent with Mr. Poole. And that was really important in 1988 because the victim was killed with a small knife. And so presumably what happened is the perpetrator um, may have bled slightly. And so there was blood found at the scene that was inconsistent with the blood type of Mr. Poole. But to answer your other question, um, no, that was not before the jury or at least not before the jury in in an effective way. The report was generated and um, the the report was stipulated to at trial, yet neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney um, highlighted the fact that Mr. Poole was excluded from that bloody stone. Got it. So when you got involved in the Poole case, what, you know, tell us, tell us the thought process and what eventually led to um, you being able to convince the state attorney general's integrity unit to agree to make the motion to uh, release him. Again, it's too, too, it's a very long story, Mike, because it was 18 years, but I'll, I'll try to touch on a couple of highlights. Um, we, because we do focus still to this day on post-conviction DNA testing, we requested post-conviction DNA testing in 2014, we filed a a motion in the Oakland County Circuit Court. Um, That motion was actually denied, despite the fact that we met the criteria for post-conviction DNA testing um, by the established law. 
So we appealed that and it took us about three years to get that decision overturned. We had to take the case to the Michigan Supreme Court. So now fast forward, it's 2016. We got a court order for DNA testing. We have very, um, we have, we have blood that's in very poor condition. The blood that we were talking about earlier on the stone that we knew prior to trial excluded Mr. Poole was collected on a string. So think about a sewing thread. Think about some wet blood on a stone and putting that thread down on the stone and then lifting it up and seeing a little bit of red on the thread. By the time we were able to interact with that evidence again, you could not see blood on that thread anymore. So we had a few samples of blood from stones and grass around the body of the victim, but we didn't have a lot of other biological evidence because it was never found to this day. Um, so we tested um, a number of blood samples, um, or I should say we didn't test them, um, but the Michigan State Police tested those samples and they concluded that the only blood that they detected on any of these samples was the victim. So that's a dead end for us. So we shifted gears and we started working pretty rigorously on the bite mark um, and fig trying. Now, again, as I mentioned to your viewers, this had been litigated multiple times. So um, I'm sure with your other guests, you've learned that courts are not interested in having you come back to court, raising the same thing over and over. And that is a huge problem for innocent folks because sometimes it's really important to revisit those things. Um, on that so, point, no, no, yeah. Marla, on that point, it's a good point. And I've brought that up before. Sure. This man was innocent. And how many court of appeals panels and Supreme courts kind of just, just kind of said the jury did what they did and there's enough evidence here and we're not going to review it. I mean, the, the, it was, there was a lot, there's a lot of appeals here. There's a lot of courts. There's a lot of judges who got it dead wrong in this case. And in all of these wrongful conviction cases they're not, con I can't remember a case we've done 10 or 11 of these now, different people tell me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember a case where the first court, where the first court of appeals said, yeah, this doesn't seem right. We need to get involved. It's usually three, four, five, six levels of appeals or a conviction integrity unit to say all the appeals are wrong. The Supreme Court was wrong. All the judges who looked at this was wrong. I mean, am I missing something here? Uh, you're you're just bringing up such an important point, Mike. And And the sort of short answer to why that is the case is when you have a criminal trial, that is your only opportunity to put the facts on a court record. And once that court record is made, um, most of the time, any reviewing court will be limited to, re to reviewing what was on that court record. There are some exceptions to that, but that's generally the case. So if you think about it, Mike, if you're innocent, that means and you were wrongfully convicted, then clearly the story of your innocence was not told at the trial. A completely different story was told. That is the that is the story or the court record that's getting reviewed. So um, that's that's you know that's there's a way more we could we could discuss on that. But that is the problem. And in Gilbert Poole's case, when he got to federal court, they acknowledged 
that the bite mark should not have been admitted at his trial, but they found that, that the state court finding that that was harmless error, that's what the state court found. It was harmless error. So at some point, both the state and federal courts in Gilbert Poole's case acknowledged that that evidence shouldn't have been admitted, but they they ruled essentially that the evidence, other evidence against him was still showed that he was guilty. So if I could just add on, that is the beauty of working with a conviction integrity unit, because to some extent we can really roll up our sleeves and look at what's really important here, which is if that story is not correct, why wasn't it correct? And what new evidence do we have to show that it's not? And, so and that changed, all, that's a game changer. And you're all going back to the trial. I mean, you're right. that, And that you put it really nicely. I mean, it all goes back to the trial. And that's what all the judges have to look at, look at when they're making these decisions. But now that these CIU units are around, you went to them. And what was the smoking gun that allowed you to convince them that everybody got it wrong? Well, what we did is we were, we were prepared, as I was saying, we were preparing this case for different angles and um, the conviction integrity unit was established. So that in and of itself, we knew would be a better forum to go to because of what you just brought up, that going back to court, um, it was going to be difficult to get a court to look at these same issues again. We have to have new things. We also had to have new things for the attorney general's office. Um, that is one of their criteria. But we had the DNA results from 2016 um, re reviewed by an expert, uh, an outside independent expert. And he um, found a minor contributor in a few of the samples and he excluded Gilbert Poole. So we then had that reevaluation of the results from 2016. And then we, we we made the bite mark argument again. Um, but one of the things that had changed over the years is that our own state Supreme Court uh, had amended its post-conviction rules to say that change in science is new evidence. So we were able to package it as new evidence and then um, present that to um, the CIU. And then the final thing we did, Mike, is we also hired another expert to review thoroughly the um, identification of Gilbert Poole as the perpetrator from start to finish. And we, um, she generated a 25 page report um, that pointed out uh, the many shortcomings in the identification of Gilbert Poole. Um, no one saw who killed um, the victim in this case, but um, several bar patrons saw the victim leave the bar the night before he was murdered with a man that they considered to be a stranger. And um, Mr. Poole was never put in a lineup um, and independently identified by these folks. And he was not arrested um, for eight until eight months after the murder. Um, and also the government introduced a composite drawing that looked exactly like Gilbert Poole which we know was drawn after Gilbert Poole was arrested um, because there were earlier composites put in a newspaper, but no one ever challenged that. So many mistakes. This poor man spent 32 years in prison. Both his parents died when he was in prison. He missed 
more than half of his life. How will he get his, uh, well, I'm not going to ask how he's going to get his life back, but is he going to be compensated for this? He is going to be compensated under the state compensation law. Yes. Okay. And he's filed for that. Yes. And, you know, I read that Dana Nessel herself showed up at the release party to say sorry to him. Did he, she do this one-on-one with him or were you there when this happened? Yes, I was. So two, two things that were really different in my experience over the years with this exoneration. One, of course, was working collaboratively, right, um, on this case for the very first time in the 18 years um, that I'd worked on the case. So her team um, in the Conviction Integrity Unit, um, you know, they listened to us and they did their own investigation and they were convinced that Gilbert Poole was innocent. And um not only did Dana Nessel do a press conference and publicly apologize to Gilbert Poole, but she did come to a park near the prison where we all gathered to welcome Mr. Poole home. And yes, they they spoke um, and, um, you know, she she had a one on one conversation with him, as well as she had several folks from her office who came. And that's the way this business should be done, without a doubt. It was very classy, and um, and you know, it's it's really important for everyone, including you know our top public officials, to see to to see the human you know the humanity. This is a this is a person who's lost all these years, and um, by meeting him, I'm sure that it had a huge effect on her and anyone else that would have come to that release party. The word classy uh, came to my mind and you stole it from me. Uh, but Dana Nessel coming to apologize was a classy move. Um, I mean, there's still- well, Sincerely so- apologize, sincerely apologize. You can tell when someone is being yeah. sincere and when they're not. And, um, you know, again, I'm very proud to be working in the state of Michigan right now and working with two conviction integrity units that I truly believe um, have earned their name of integrity. Is Karen McDonald going to get one set up? I hear she uh, is working on it. That's what I hear. And I, you know, I totally support it and, you know, would love to be a resource to her. Um, it's, it's a tough thing. Um, they need to be independent from the prosecutor's office. They have to, you know, they, in order to have a, you know, a legitimate conviction integrity unit, you, you need to be thoughtful about how you approach it because you are the prosecutor's office and um, you need you know, you are not really in a prosecutorial role when you're reviewing a case as a conviction integrity unit attorney. So Karen McDonald was on our show before she was elected and uh, that was one of her platforms. So I assume she's going to do it. She seems like a woman of her word and uh, hopefully we'll have a third in Michigan. And I agree with you, you know, our Supreme court um, with um, uh, justice McCormick at the helm, who, as we both know, knows this stuff better than, most um hopefully there's you know just more uh, exciting things to um you know make our criminal justice system fair my last question for you is you know there's still so many people in prison who who are innocent you know what are your opinions on what we can do as a society to help the wrongfully convicted we need to address the problems on the front end so um we've talked about some of those issues right in any case in which DNA technology can be used, we should use it. Um, 
um, we should not um, allow um, some of these forensic practices, we should not permit this type of science to be introduced. Um, you know, we need to have transparency in the government, open discovery files, anything favorable to the defendant is required by law to be turned over prior to trial um, that's in the government's possession. That's, you know, evidence that's covered up contributes to wrongful convictions such as Ken and Gil, Gil's case. And the list goes on. But I will say, Mike, that a lot of these problems are fixable. Um, we're always going to have human error in our system, but there are some of these things that we can put in place through legislation, through policy, um, that can help prevent wrongful convictions for sure. On our, on our uh, show notes, um, we're going to put your, um, offices, uh, website, which there's links to Corey, Quentin, McCall, Gilbert Poole, Kenneth Nixon, Ladura Watkins, Donia Danya Davis, Nathaniel Hatchett, Kenny Wanenko, um, with full stories, which I think are really excellent, excellently written. Um, and I think, you know, fascinating for those of you who want to learn more about Mr. Poole's case, things that your office is doing and your school is doing. I commend you. I think this was really, really good work. 18 years of dedication, Marla. It's quite frankly, mind boggling to me. Um, and I just applaud you and respect you and, um, you know, thank, thank God for you and thank, you know, for, especially for all these people here, um, that you were able to play a, a part of, of writing the wrongs that, you know, were apparent and it took 32 years, unfortunately for Mr. Poole and a lot of years for the others. And it's just heartbreaking, but it makes me happy that there's people like you out there, um, helping and I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And, and let me just add, Mike, that um, if you have listeners that have loved ones in prison or they're in prison and they're listening, um, we only accept requests for assistance from directly from the prisoner. So we would encourage your listeners to have those prisoners write directly to our office. And I think we've talked you know, today about the criteria that we look at in screening cases and the kind of cases that we can assist on. So thank you for having me. Well, Marla Mitchell Sishin, thank you so much for being on Open Mic, and I hope to talk to you again one day. Okay, Mike, I'd be happy to come back. Thank Take you. care. Wow, she what a what a smart smart person! What a great uh, a clinic she has with law students, really helping you know shape it and run the show. Um, we will have a show notes so you can go to her website. If you want to help with donations, if you want to help, you know, if you know somebody in prison, have them, have them apply. If they, if you think that uh, they meet the criteria and uh, I learned a bunch as you saw, and that was a, a, a really fascinating episode. So thank you for being here. Uh, please like subscribe, share, do whatever you need to do to get this episode out there, comment, and I look forward to seeing you next time on open mic.